And he tells the doctor, it's okay. I'm always honorable towards all the women I've impregnated. And, and he says, I liked Helen the best. Poisoned History is a podcast about chemical poisons and how they've been used for nefarious purposes throughout history. Some of the subject matter in this podcast might not be suitable for youngsters, and nothing discussed on this podcast should ever be tried at home or anywhere else. I'm your host, Suzanne, and I'm a chemist. Today, I've convinced John to join me again, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Additional disclaimer, both of us had had the stomach flu the week of recording, and we were not 100%, so apologies for that. And in addition, there was uh, more nuance in this episode than I originally thought. So I ended up making it into two parts. So first part this month and a month from now, I will release the second month, second part. If you would like to suggest topics for the show, as usual, you can send them to poisonedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And as always, references are in the show notes. Enjoy the show. So this story, this is a new story, and it's about a guy named Carlisle Harris and his girlfriend or wife, we'll find out, Helen Potts. Actually, her full name is Mary Helen Potts. So the little summary is, on January 31st of 1891, Helen Potts was living at the Comstock School, which is a finishing school for young ladies in New York City. And one night, she skipped a concert that her, or the night of January 31st, she skipped a concert that her three roommates were going to because she had a headache. Before she went to bed, she took some pills given to her by Carlisle Harris, who was a medical student to whom we, she was secretly married and who, as far as anyone else knew, was her fiancé. So she was telling everyone who's her fiancé, but secretly they were supposedly married. And that evening, she felt really sick and by late the next morning, she was dead, despite three doctors trying everything they could figure out to revive her. There's your summary. So she was sick? She got sick. So she already had felt something. Then she was given something by him. She had a headache. Yes. Yes. Hence the sickness. Right. And she was given something, and then she dies. She got sick, and then, yes, uh, about 13 hours later, she was dead. I see. Yep. So let's go back. Let's dial back to the history and we'll start with uh, Carlisle, her boyfriend and secret husband. So Carlisle Harris, he was um, born in 1869 in Glens Falls, New York. He was the oldest of seven children. And he had, uh, he had both parents, Charles Harris and Frances McCready. These are all well-to-do people just high in society people. Uh, Charles Harris's father was most likely an alcoholic, couldn't hold down a job. So Frances, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Frances supported the fam- family by writing short stories and eventually was separated from him. She probably got money from her father. Her father, we'll get into it. His, her father was this rich doctor, pretty famous. Uh, she wrote some books and they were usually about the temperance movement. She was a big temperance person. Um, getting the books were often about trying to get your man to switch from liquor to tea. 
And her father was a famous doctor in New York. He founded the Bellevue Hospital, uh, part of the Bellevue Hospital. And so they were quite wealthy. And so he probably helped support her. Only four of their seven children survived to adulthood. So, you know, pretty rocky, rocky start. And he was a troublesome child, Carlisle. He gave his mother and grandfather a lot of problems. His own family described him as a pathological liar and a sex addict. Well, when he was an adult, he left school at 13, had several jobs, including becoming an actor for a while, which, you know, rich people didn't do that at the time. It was not respectable. And after he left acting, he suddenly seemed to, to get it together. He started medical school, which I guess in the 1890s was, um, or 1880s, was not as hard as it is now. Got into medical school. His wealthy grandfather offered to pay his tuition, let him live in his house in New York City. So he moved to New York City. He's doing well. He was smart, uh, but his classmates were annoyed by him because he liked to brag about his sexual con conquests to the other students. So now we go to Helen Potts. Her, her full name was Mary Helen Potts. She went by Helen. And she was born in 1871 and grew up in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. She was the daughter of George Potts, who was a wealthy railroad contractor, and his wife, Cynthia. And in the summer of 1889 is when we get started here. Frances McCready, that's uh, Carlisle's mother, she rents a cottage in o Ocean Groves, New Jersey for the summer. And this place was known at the time for religious retreats and temperance movement activities. Carlisle Harris and his brother McCready, <laughs> McCready Harris, it's a little confusing, stayed with her there. Frances gave some lectures on temperance that were attended by George and Cynthia Potts, and they all became friends. So everyone was attending the same parties. So of course, one night Carlisle met George and Cynthia's daughter, Helen Potts, at a party in Asbury Park, which we'll get to. If you know New Jersey Shore, these are all New Jersey Shore uh, watering holes. Asbury Park is pretty famous for um, sort of a carnival atmosphere. Carlisle started courting Henry and they started spending a lot of time together that summer. And uh, meanwhile, George Potts, Helen's father, decided to move his family to New York City from Ocean Grove and send his daughter to the College of Music. They were living close to where Carlisle was going to school, the medical school. So Carlisle started visiting Helen as often as he could. So at the time, Helen was 17 or 18, Carlisle was 20. So Helen's mother got annoyed, told him to stop coming over so often because she thought he was too young. Carlisle even asked if the mother, if he can get engaged to Helen. And she said, no, he's, you're too young. At the same time, Carlisle, Carlisle's brother McCready was also visiting Helen quite a bit. So very popular with both brothers. And he may have been warning Helen's mother about his brother, maybe because of competition, being a no good. Uh, possibly he was just competing, so he was kind of shit-talking his brother. And one day, Helen agreed to go with McCready to take a tour of the stock exchange. So this is the brother, where he worked. Carlisle figured it out so that she went with him instead. And they got secretly married that day. So I don't know how this worked. I assume she was on board with the plan. I suspect McCready was in on it, too, because he never... He was the younger one. He's the, he's the brother. I don't know who's. I don't remember if he was, was younger. Who was younger? The the. Good question. The woman or the male? Helen was younger than Carlisle. 
Because you kept saying like you're too young. but They're, they're both too young. Because she's 18, oh, so he's 20. So when you say you're, you mean they're too young. They are too young, yes. I see. He thought both, she thought both of them were too young. I see. So, uh, so that day, she was supposed to go with McCready, take a tour of the stock exchange. But somehow, they kind of did a switcheroo, and Carlisle ended up taking her. Uh, she went with him. They must have planned this ahead of time. And they went off and got secretly married under assumed names at City Hall. Mm -hmm. The old days before you need an ID for anything. And Carlisle Harris managed to keep the marriage certificate. So he had this marriage certificate with two fake names on it. But somehow she saw this as, as somewhat legitimate. Mm -hmm. I don't know if McCready got mad about this since he was dating her too. But whatever. They never got into that. I never couldn't find any information about that. Seems I, confusing. I personally think that it was a plot that they all put together. Like his brother was helping him get her out of the house so that they can go get married. I see. I assume. That makes sense. That makes much more sense than yeah. him not knowing that his brother on right. a date that he was supposed to Why be. wouldn't he go show up and be like, where is she? It doesn't right. sound like he did that. Right. So this is, okay, so we're into 1889, uh, the winter of 1889 now. And the winter during the winter and the spring of 1889 through 1890, Carlo managed to get Helen pregnant twice and get her to have two abortions, one with a doctor, so he, she had an operation, in quotes, and one that he performed himself because he was a medical student and a little overconfident. So during this time, he started visiting her less and less because so he was losing interest, mm -hmm. and he actually became engaged to someone else. So that, summer, that coming summer, so now we're into 1890, he was off from school. I love this guy. He's, he's so uh, entrepreneurial. He decided to set up a business in the summer between his medical school semesters back in Asbury Park, New Jersey. He borrowed $600 from his grandfather, opened a restaurant and candy store, and upstairs ran an illegal private gambling club called the Neptune Club. Pool tables, alcohol, uh, it's the 1890s, so no prohibition or anything, but you still were supposed to have a license, I guess, or at least bribe the cops. He used a fake name for the club and his real name for the candy store. Um, around this time, Helen tells him she's pregnant again, third time. Mm -hmm. And now she's threatening to not allow him to perform another abortion unless he told people in front of a witness that they were married or told someone that they were married. And so he, he agrees. He's kind of, sounds like he's trying to put her off, but he's, he's agreeing. He says, okay. So she meets with him and she brings her friend named May. And he admits to May that he married to Helen, married Helen. But he says to May, don't tell anybody. Don't tell her mother. Don't tell anyone. And she's like, well, at least I have a witness, I guess. But it's just one person. May also happened to hear him say, as she was walking away from them, that if he couldn't find a way out of this, that he would kill himself and Helen. So this is a little bit of hearsay. So that day, I, I love this part. I mean, I don't love this part. It's awful, but it's so odd. That day, Helen agrees to let Carlisle perform another abortion on her. So they, they meet with May, and then they walk down the beach, and he gives her an abortion somewhere on the beach. Mm -hmm. And he, he thought he did a successful abortion, but uh, she, started, she started bleeding out. She bled out so much that she, he thought she might die. So he um, got her you know, to where she wasn't going to die, like stopped the bleeding, and brought her home, and kind of left her with her mother. And he, she seemed really sick. So 
Her mother didn't know what was wrong. Nobody, nobody shouldn't told anyone she was pregnant. Sent her to her, her brother-in-law, who happened to be a doctor, in uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania. So all the way to Scranton. The doctor immediately figured out she's like three months pregnant. And uh, maybe more. She tells, so she tells the doctor about her secret marriage and the abortions. And he had her sign a statement about this. So now we're into uh, July of 1890. He's, he treats her, um, basically takes her, uh, keeps her healthy keeps her alive until she expels the baby's basically is stillborn at this point because he had sort of done a, you know, a halfway abortion. The baby was not alive anymore. Fetus was not alive. And, uh, this is an important point. While he was treating her, he gave her, um, morphine for the pain. So three quarters of a grain every three hours. And I'm going to stick with grains. This is an old measurement. A grain just for reference is 600 or 65 milligrams, but, hmm. Most of the measurements are in grains, and it's just simpler. So three quarters of a grain every three hours. Uh, meanwhile, he sent an angry angry letter to Carlisle telling him that he wants him to come to Scranton and demanding payment for the treatment. <clears throat> Carlisle shows up, says he's a medical student, and he brought his bag of medical medical instruments. And he says, what do you need help with? And the doctor says, this is Dr. Treverton. He says, I don't need your help or your instruments. So uh, Carlisle hangs out with Dr. Trevorton's nephew, Oliver. He, they go sightseeing. They go see coal mines, which I guess at the time is what you did in Pennsylvania. Uh, the nephew doesn't know anything about what's going on. Uh, so he's just spending time with Carlisle. Carlisle's bragging to, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. His name was Charles Oliver. Bragging to Charles as they walk along about how easy to get is to get women drunk and have sex with them. Mm -hmm. And he says, uh, only two women had ever refused him, but he talked them both into secret marriages so that, that he would make it okay. So he'd already married another woman, allegedly, and uh, gotten her pregnant. Or, had, well, had sex with her anyway. Convinced her to have sex with him because he got secretly married to her. Mm -hmm. And uh, that story was that before he had met Helen, he convinced her, this other woman to get an abortion after his his secret marriage to her too. And after the abortion, she said, I don't want anything to do with you, you know, go away. So he was done with her. And it's kind of surprising to me that this guy is telling this guy's nephew, the doctor's nephew, who's treating his secret wife, all this stuff, whatever. He just sounds like this, a big braggart and pathological liar guy had issues. Mm -hmm. So between coal mine tours, he, he goes and visits Dr. Treverton, finds out how she's doing says, okay, stillborn child. And he tells the doctor, it's okay. I've, I'm always honorable towards all the women I've impregnated. <laughs> and, and he says, I liked Helen the best. <laughs> so he goes back to Asbury Park. She's still being treated by the doctor. Uh, a few weeks later, his gambling club gets raided and by the police and he gets arrested. Probably he wasn't bribing the right people. It'd be my guess. This is New Jersey. And uh, so now... Dr. Treverton is threatening to report him to his college because, you know, obviously they would kick him out for this kind of behavior. Uh, Helen's mother finds out about the whole thing and tells him, hold off. Remember, these are wealthy people. They're afraid of scandal. They don't want any of this to get out. And she knew at this point, she knew about the fake names. She knew about the marriage certificate, but she was hoping that she could get Carlisle to marry Helen in a public ceremony. 
to repair the reputation. And they go back and forth. Um, once the cat's out of the bag, he's now talking to Helen's mother, asking for forgiveness. He says, you know, it's okay. We're married. Sure. I burned the, I burned the marriage certificate, but it's, it's okay. And because <laughs> he had burned the marriage certificate at some point. So by the way, he just got out of jail, right? He got on bail, goes back to New York, starts his fall semester in medical college. And <laughs> meanwhile, he is, uh, promised to marry Helen to her mother, but he says, can you wait until the gambling club scandal has blown over? Because I don't want to ruin everybody's reputation. So she says, okay, we'll wait. Meanwhile, he convinces Mrs. Potts to send Cal Cal send Helen to the Comstock finishing school because he says, I'm going to be a doctor and she's going to be my wife. I want a proper wife. She's got to go to a finishing school. This is the place for her. So she sends her to the Comstock School. She's all better. Uh, she starts there in December of 1890. So then about a month later, Carlisle is having second thoughts. So now he tells Mrs. Potts he wants to wait two years before marrying Helen. He says she should finish up at Comstock, go to college. And Mrs. Potts gets nervous. She says, well, you know, what if you die? She'll have nothing. You got to marry her now. And But she says, I'll wait as long as you want to announce it. But you got to marry her. So she says, why don't you get married February 8th? Because that's a year since the date of this first secret marriage. So he says, okay. So now it's January. Remember, you remember what date she dies? End of the month, right? She's got a, a, barely a month to live. So meanwhile, Helen's been complaining of sleeplessness, headaches, and uh, other malaria symptoms. So a lot of people think she might have malaria. And I'm kind of surprised in America, like how many people got malaria, but when you realize how swampy things were in New York and Washington, D.C. and areas anywhere along the coast, it makes sense. <coughs> so then on January 20th, uh, Carlisle went to a pharmacy and asked the clerk to prepare six capsules with a combination of morphine and quinine. So normally you'd have to be a doctor and not just a medical student, but the clerk didn't ask questions. Um, he had, so the clerk made up the prescription and he had another clerk watch him make the capsules. This is all pretty good protocol. It was a total of one grain of morphine and 25 grains of quinine. And he used a mortar and pestle, ground it all up together, put them into capsules, uh, checked the weight of all the capsules and uh, made up the prescription. So fun fact about quinine, which I didn't really know, uh, not really used for malaria treatment anymore. They've got way better drugs for that. But now it's often used to cut illegal drugs. So uh, a lot of heroin has quinine mixed in with it because it's bitter and I guess it gives it an extra bump. I don't know. And also in the one ch when China had the one child policy, a lot of times they would use an overdose of quinine to terminate pregnancies. Fun fact. Not so fun, I guess. So Carlisle gets these prescription. He gives Helen four of, the, four of the six capsules and tells her to take all of them before going to bed to make and to make sure no one wakes her up before the morning. So she only took two because um, she wasn't sure about taking four. So she took two. The next day she felt sick and uh, didn't want to take the others. And he said, take them anyway. So... 
uh, just an amount thing. So if she had taken all the capsules, all four, and they each had one-sixth of a grain of morphine, that would only add up to two-thirds of a grain of morphine total, right? So let's say she had taken all four and they were properly prepared. Two-thirds of a grain is still less than what she was getting every three hours from that doctor in Scranton. So not too much morphine, right? And uh, you need to take, uh, I think they said about 120 grains of quinine to cause death. So the quinine mm -hmm. definitely wouldn't kill you. Morphine, you know, it's, it's more dangerous, but you still have to take more than that. So the next, uh, the next day, I think it was, Mrs. January 30th, Mrs. Potts visits Helen at Comstock School on the afternoon of January 30th to meet the roommates. And Helen mentions the pills making her sick. And she shook, shook the little box, and her mother said it sounded like there was one pill left at the time. So she probably took another one the next day. And her mother told her, go ahead and take it anyway, because she was worried about her being sick from malaria. So she said, you seem to have symptoms. You should just take it. A, a medical student gave it to you. So it miss, Mrs. Potts left at 3 o'clock on the 30th to go back to Ocean Grove. And that night was the night when she went to, um, I think it was the next night. She was the night when, when her roommates went to the concert because she wasn't feeling well. And she took the last capsule. So the roommates came back from the concert. She woke up, and this was about 11 o'clock at night, and she had told the, the woman that ran the school or the woman that ran the dorm, dormitory to tell her roommates not to wake her up. But they didn't get the message. So she, they came home, and they woke, woke her up, and she was sort of complaining of uh, numbness and a choking sensation. And they said her skin was turning blue, and she was complaining she felt like she was dying. So around midnight, they called the headmistress, and she called the doctor. The doctor found her with uh, pinpoint pupils, and un she was unconscious, and recognized symptoms of an opiate overdose. So they gave Helen, here's, here's the treatments, uh, coffee enema, uh, picked her arms up and down because they, have not, they hadn't discovered mouth-to-mouth -mouth resusc resuscitation anymore. They gave her uh, whiskey, atropine, digitalis, and oxygen. And then they shocked her with a battery. Uh, they didn't pump her stomach because they thought it might kill her since her breathing was so slow that she might, you know, suffocate. And um, the reason they gave her atropine and digitalis was to speed up the heart. I assume coffee enema, same reason. Shocking her with the battery, I, I guess that was to get the heart started or boost it a little bit. Uh, about 6 a.m., Carlisle shows up at the school and he watches the doctors trying to revive her. Uh, he kept asking the doctors, I think he asked them eight or nine times whether he might be blamed. And so about 11 o'clock, the doctors finally declared her dead. Harris said, uh, my God, what will become of me? That was his response to that. So um, this is so some information about drugs and preparation of pills. And uh, it's really important if you're making a pill out of something dry, make sure everything's mixed and compared combined with so one pill doesn't get all the morphine and quinine and another pill gets all the quinine so this is the root of the fentanyl epidemic problem you only need a tiny amount of fentanyl to get high and so mixing it in with other fillers has to be done very carefully so you make sure you don't get two little bits which would kill you instead of one little bit which gets you high so it's hard enough to do this with liquids but solids is even harder so Carlisle blamed the pharmacist for making a mistake. He said they must have put all the morphine in one or two of the pills. 
Um, this seems unlikely since they had two clerks working on it, unless they were both incompetent and both lying to save their jobs. Possible. Uh, so at the funeral, in true Victorian fashion, Helen's father thought he saw her move, even though she had been embalmed, and demanded she be watched for 24 hours before burial. Because if you remember, the Victorians were obsessed with uh, premature burial. So the burial didn't happen for a week, February 7th. Uh, do you have any comments so far? Thoughts? No, because I, like I don't... I'm going on and on. It's not just that. It's the... What is the... What is the question? Did he kill her? You never, you never asked that question. Oh. Because you haven't even established a motive yet. Right. That's coming. Well, that would have to be before you can establish how someone died. You'd have to, you'd have to understand why they died. Hmm. Well, we don't know yet. I mean, we haven't right, so I done can't, the investigation yet. We can't ask that question until we know. Okay. I think that's more pertinent than how she died. Right. I mean, we know she died. Well, I, I guess it was implied she, he wanted her out of the picture. That would be his main motive. He did not want to marry her. That's a, I, I was implying that. I didn't mean to. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a plausible uh, that's reason. But you, you, what could you point to that, that demonstrates that he wanted her out of the picture? Good question. Nothing you've said so far indicates that. Uh, the fact that he's a pathological liar could be because he was telling her a lot of things and changing his story a lot, I guess. Right. But was my thought. I mean, I have a lot of counter arguments. I mean, he had a lot of girlfriends. He did. So, and he was able to get rid of them without killing them. But why was she yes. special? Uh, I don't think they were as wealthy. So he wanted to marry her. That's a, it's a good question. That doesn't, that, that doesn't warm out. Well, these are a lot of... If you of have other information, I, I don't have a motive yet. So to, yeah, to yeah. establish wh why she died, you, you'd have to... For, in my This is what we can talk about. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, uh, I was talking about it. Yeah. You wanted to talk some more. Well, I thought you had information that, that elucidated that. Uh, I'm getting there. All right. Yeah. I'll wait. Okay. So they did a coroner's inquest... Um, Mrs. Potts tried to give Carlisle's mother $50 so he could flee, flee the area before the inquest because she was so afraid of a scandal. Uh, she thought, well, it's a local offense, so maybe he can just get away. But that didn't really work, as we'll see. So they did an inquest. They returned a verdict of death by morphine poisoning. But the investigation had been so badly run that the district attorney's office decided not to prosecute the case. They lost, For example, they lost the pillbox and they failed to order an autopsy just mm -hmm. to give two examples. So uh, meanwhile, the medical college was trying to expel Carlisle mm -hmm. and because he's mixed up in this, also because he'd been arrested, and uh, for, the other, for the other thing, the Neptune Club. So he was talking to a reporter, trying to clear his name or defend himself, but he just dug himself in deeper. So after the interview, he went to an interview, and then I guess he maybe panicked, uh, went to the district attorney's office, and said he was there to refute what was in the story in the paper. Brought his aunt with an aunt with him and said, you know, do you know who my grandfather is? I'm very important. But then the district attorney, uh, after speaking with him, was actually convinced that he was guilty and reopened the case. So he was about to close. The district attorney was going to re was going to close the case because of the uh, coroner's inquest being so badly done. But then after 
Carlisle came and talked to him, he was convinced that uh, that Harris was guilty. And so he opened the whole thing up again. If he had done nothing, probably the whole thing would have blown over. So it sounded like kind of sociopathic behavior where you, you think you're smarter than everybody else and you can go and convince this guy that to let you off because he didn't want to get thrown out of medical school. Well, absolutely. He has a motive to keep yeah. his reputation and absolutely. his career choice. So, uh, yeah. So on March 25th, about a month and a half after her death, they dug her back up and they did an autopsy mm -hmm. looking for morphine and quinine. So I was really interested in this to figure out, like, this is the part I'm interested in is the chemistry. So they, I was trying to think, like, how would they have done this? Because the information isn't really there. So what they said was they found a small quantity of morphine. They didn't find any quinine in her system. And they estimated that she had taken three to five grains of morphine. The doctor who conducted the autopsy did 14 different spot tests or some sort of test for morphine. Uh, the court only determined five of them to be definitive, so they accepted five of the tests. Uh, morphine's half-life is one to six hours in the body, so she had three to five grains. Twelve hours later, she would have had, at most, uh, three-quarters to two-and-a-half grains left in her body. They never specified the amount that the chemist uh, found, mm -hmm. and I'm not 100% sure that they could even tell that, But because what you would have to do is like grind up the organs put them through a filter, separate everything out, test all the different um, outcomes of the filter, and then see which one had, you know, you have to weigh each one and then decide which one had the morphine. It's very complicated. I have a question. Sure. Uh, what does morphine do to the, uh, to the pain sensories? I mean, I, I always thought that it uh, mitigated pain. As far as I know, what it does is it shuts down your central nervous system. Right. So you would be... Uh, just out of it. Out of it. Not just out of it, but you would be agnostic to yes. any pain at all. Correct. However, she was complaining that she wasn't feeling well. And the prescription... Numbness, yeah. Right. Well, not just that, that she wasn't feeling well, is right. what you said. And that her mother said, go ahead and take the other ones because you're not feeling well. Which would indicate that the morphine couldn't have been that strong to where she was cognitive enough to uh, to express pain or discomfort. Correct. She would have been out. She would have been out if it had been a lot. Right. Right. But or, remember, or especially if you're there claiming that she was being overdosed. Right. Uh, and I'll, g I'll get to that in a minute, what, what their theory is. I see. What he did. Okay. Um, maybe I'm doing this backwards, but we'll, I promise we'll get to it. So, uh, so... Quinine's half-life is 8 to 14 hours in a body. So 12 hours had passed between her taking the last pills and her death. So if, she, if there was any quinine in that last pill, there, had, there um, should have been at least two grains of it still in her system. If there's 25 grains in those six pills, that would translate to her having about two grains left in her system, right. which is a lot of quinine that should have turned up in a test. So this proves evidence, provides evidence that there's, that last pill had no quinine in it but probably had morphine in it. Okay. Okay. So, uh, and by the way, they had a couple different tests. So some of these spot tests I just thought were interesting. So there's one where you, you put uh, molybdic acid dissolved in hot concentrated sulfuric acid and you drip it onto the substance and it changes to pur 
purplish red if morphine is present. And I've, I've been like too close to hot sulfuric, to just room temperature sulfuric acid before. And boy, that'll burn your nose. You're not careful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I can't even imagine in the conditions of 1890s doing a lab test with hot sulfuric acid, because I know they didn't have fume hoods. They might've had a nearby window and sticking your nose around that stuff. It's amazing chemists survived, but anyway. Um, so after the inquest, he was charged with first degree, first degree murder. And I'll, I'll tell you why. The prosecution's theory was that he got the six capsules with, with the one grain of morphine distributed throughout all six capsules and the, and the quinine. And he replaced the contents of just one of the capsules with a lethal dose of morphine. So they said that during one of his medical, medical school classes, they had passed around a jar of morphine and he would have had a chance to take some of it. So their theory was that he was hoping she would take all four and one of them would kill her or that she would just keep taking them. Eventually she would take the one with all the morphine in it. So he had access to this morphine before he went and got the prescription of Absolutely. morphine. Yes. Then my question would be, why would he go to the pharmacist at all? As a cover. Because the other thing he did was he got six capsules, but he kept two of them for himself. So he could blame the pharmacist. So that he could say like, oh, look, these two were fine. Hmm. I don't know what happened with the other ones. Like, you know, these ones didn't have a lethal dose. Those other ones must have. They made a mistake. I mean, there's Although, a lot of holes in that theory. No, I, I didn't say it worked. So, uh, my brain's already like spinning. finding a lot of, yeah, it's, right. it's, it's flimsy because here is a person who wants to get married and demonstrate to a family that he wants to get married. Right. He gets very little from this, mm. uh, and he wants to continue a career as a, a doctor mm -hmm. and his first patient dies on him. Mm. And all evidence points to him. True. Okay, so great. No, that's a good point. What, what else you got? Uh, unless he's a sociopath. I don't know. He, he is a sociopath because of his, you know, his... He may not be a very smart one. Um, Maybe. His behavior. Yeah. Well, I don't... Who knows? So, so the theory is that he only replaced one of the capsules because he didn't want the other pills to be found to have a large amount of morphine. And then the reason he... Because if he had taken just the one and died, and then they found morphine in the other ones, he would be implicated. So, uh, and then the reason that, the theoretical reason that he told everyone not to wake her up is so he was hoping the morphine would be processed by her system before it killed her, wouldn't be found in her stomach in an autopsy. Uh, they ruled out suicide because they said her situation was resolving itself, her mood was good, which, according to your theory, may have also ruled out murder. But we'll see. Uh, they went. They went to. I guess they sent the cops to arrest Carlisle, but they accidentally arrested his brother McCready, because they were. I think they were at the lawyer's office. They thought he was at the lawyer's office. It was his brother, and his brother got sort of mad and refused to identify himself. So they arrested him, and then so after they arrested his brother, they told him and Carlisle turned himself in. And they. Trials, the trial started uh, a year later, after several delays, almost a year after the death, January 19th, 1892. This was very sensational because of obviously high society people. And um, there were lots of things that defense tried to argue, 
they first they tried to say Helen died from an undiagnosed ailment like a heart defect or a brain tumor exacerbated by a normal dose of nor morphine. Didn't you say she was sick for a month? Uh, she was in she was sick when she was uh, recovering from the abortion and he was giving her morphine up in Scranton. No, you so. said earlier that mm. they assumed it was malaria because her mother said she might have malaria. Yeah. Right, which mm -hmm. if the symptoms, I mean, she's not a doctor, so she could be just misdiagnosing her. Right. But she must have visibly seen something about her that would have indicated that she had some sort of infection uh, mm -hmm. over a period of time. Uh, I mean, it was a pretty, sh about a month or two, yeah. Right. Okay. And I'm curious why they didn't connect the, the dots. Between, say it again? Okay, so there's just holes in the in the story that don't make sense. So mm. if someone's sick over a long period of time, you assume there's something systemically wrong with them, right? Okay. Yet they're trying to pinpoint a cause of death within a one-day period mm. and ignoring the entire month that she was sick. Yes. So how are they able to... Well, there, there was... I'll get to what uh what the um thing is that the symptom that that clinched it and that would sound like it would be exculpatory well um no well okay let me get to it okay okay so th remember the doctor in scranton was giving her that um the morphine every three hours right so mm-hmm the defense arguing that she would die of some ailment that was uh, exacerbated by morphine was kind of ridiculous because she was um, already taking morphine before and, you know, no heart defect was exacerbated when she took it at the doctor's Right, but they right? assumed the doctor so. that there was no foul play. They're, they're assuming... Well, of course, yeah. They're assuming that Carlisle... Well, of course. ...was operating under some yeah. ulterior motive. So the thing that clinched it was uh, symmetrical pinpoint pupils. So mm -hmm. this can't be, supposedly this can't be caused by anything else except an overdose of, of an opiate. I wouldn't say and, overdose. This could be caused by any, uh, I mean, are you, or is that a, is that a, a, a specific condition? Specific. Yes, symmetrical pinpoint, meaning both of them contract exactly the same. So what you're saying is that if I take any type of opiate that I would not, experience that unless I had an overdose? You, uh, well, a large amount, let's say. A large amount. A right. large amount, right. Right, which she had. Which those pills that he supposedly gave her didn't have a large amount. It was just enough to, like, treat a headache. So... And this is something that occurs when yeah. she dies? They, they remain pinpoint? Well, while she was being treated for 12 hours or whatever So she was, had the dilated her, eyes. Uh, pinpoint. Pinpoint, excuse mm -hmm. me. For all that, well, for all the time that they were treating her, that was the first thing they noticed. The first doctor that came. I always thought that was a symptom of of uh, any opiate. As your eyes become right. pinpoint. Well, yeah, any opiate. Right, but they're they're ascribing it to a cause of death. Right, but what would be the other opiate? Well, the question is is whether the the uh, the argument is that she overdosed on morphine. I, nothing you've said so far indicate. Or, demonstrates that she overdosed. The only thing you've demonstrated is that she had uh, morphine in her system, which we all know. Right, but not enough to kill her, supposedly. 
That, that's what my question is. You haven't right. demonstrated anything that has shown. If you had a small amount of morphine, it would not give you pinpoint pupils. I just, that was my question. You're yeah. saying extremely small amount. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that the one grain divided by six. So one-sixth of a grain in each pill would have been like a tiny amount. Well, that's that's pertinent. I mean, yeah, I, would, I, would in, okay. I would need to know how much you would have to take to, uh, uh, to give you pinpoint. So it was uh, three to five grains to kill you. Mm -hmm. And so he had, each pill had uh, one-sixth of a grain. And you're saying that's not even remotely enough to cause mm. any type of eye? Uh, no. Because pinpoint pupils means basically you can't see. And so you would, that's a huge symptom. Like that's just not, you know, if your headache is better, you're not like, oh my God, but also I can't see. Like it's not, you would not take enough morphine to give yourself pinpoint pupils. That's, that's a severe symptom of uh, an overdose. Okay. I need to look that anyway. Up. So three doctors testified to this and they searched her room. They didn't find any, any other medicines and they couldn't find anything else that might've killed her. So, um, the prosecution did fi also find the other woman that he had supposedly married and who had had the abortion, but she didn't, she wouldn't testify because she wanted nothing to do with him anymore. So they couldn't use that as evidence against him. Uh, Basically, on mostly on the weight of the whole pinpoint pupil thing, the symmetrical pinpoint pupils, they had many testify, many doctors testify to this. And on that strength of that evidence, he was convicted of first degree murder, sentenced to death on February 8th of 1892. For 15 months, the press continued to cover the case while he appealed the decision with stories of other women he had supposedly impregnated, reports of Helen having large quantities of morphine in her system, there was a lot of statements of her being an opium eater, or no, I guess they call her a morphine eater. Mm -hmm. um, and there was never any evidence of that, but a lot of stories were sensationalizing it. I wondered about that, whether they had, because he had access to morphine that they were experimenting. But that would go against their sort of temperance movement. Well, that was the parents, though, not really them. Okay, so. I think that was more the parents. Then thing. that could be a possibility. Did I they ever test that. him uh, if he had, well, if did they have drug tests to test him for morphine? I don't know if they did drug tests. I assume they could do urinalysis. They could do spot tests. So, yeah. Well, if I that. remember correctly, if you handle opiates for a while, you will absorb it through your skin. Is that correct? Not enough to overdose. That's, no, that's no, 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 no. That's not my yeah. question. My question oh. is exposure is what I'm looking at. Oh, if you handle it. Right. So let's say he's stealing it. They're, mm. they're, they're uh, you know, he's handling it. And uh, if they could demonstrate even a small trace of, of mm. opiate in his system, you know, while he was alive, they could have uh, made an argument that they were, at least the defense should, could have made the argument that maybe they had been using uh, drugs for a while. Yeah, but he never said anything about that. Like, he never tried to say, oh, we both took it and she just overdosed. Mm -hmm. She never, I don't think he ever said that. The, the press said that a lot. I don't think that would have Maybe he wasn't thinking in a sense that that would have cleared his name or that would have just muddied the water. It might have been worse. Rather, it may have made it worse, yeah. but it would have been a defense. You know, I, I, think, I think they started off with, you know, I don't want to get kicked out of college. Well, now I don't want my family's name to get dragged through the mud. Well, and then at the end, okay, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't want to be convicted for murder. I think they were way more concerned with their reputation initially. I understand, but I'm still trying so. to figure out whether he did it or not. Right now, you no motive. 
The motive uh, is, yeah, the motive is definitely sketchy. You're right. Well, given that they were charging him with first degree, which implied that it was intentional. Uh, yes, they did imply that. Um, and as far as, it, it, it just, what would he get out of it? So, um, just to finish off, he was at a, a place called the Tombs, which is the detention center complex in lower Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And the visitors would crowd in to see him. The whole 15 months, people were visiting him all the time. There was a place called, a part of it called Murderer's Row. And uh, reminds me of that, that movie Chicago, or the play Chicago. Mm -hmm. So he tried and failed to get a new trial. After He had an appeal. The appeal failed. He tried to get a new trial. There was lots of rumors of new evidence, but I guess they didn't really get any. Um, he tried to kill himself shortly before he was executed by swallowing chewed up newspapers even though he had sworn he would never kill himself. As While he's on death row. Continued, yes, continued professes innocence. That's a, that's, really a, the end. that's a tell right there, in my opinion. Trying to kill yourself? Right. Well, it, it could go either way because you could just, he was he was executed with the electric, trail, electric chair. So you might have just been afraid of that and thought, although I feel like killing yourself by swallowing newspapers might be worse. Well, I'm not thinking that. I'm thinking <laughs> Surely that. Surely it wouldn't be quicker. There... Generally, if 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 freedom freedom is so important to you, uh, and you have no remorse, mm -hmm. that you would hope maybe you would get a pardon or some evidence would pop yes. up. However, if you have some remorse over or you know a conscience, then uh, then that that's why you would that that would be the mm -hmm. a big impetus for wanting to kill yourself. I mean, there's lots of reasons why people do stuff like that. He might have wanted control over the situation oh die his own way die your own way yeah that's true and and the electric chair you know pretty scary it is so uh they executed him with the electric chair at sing sing prison uh may 8th 1893 maintained his innocence of the murder to the end and the thing is even if he had gotten clemency he had other charges in new jersey for infanticide uh in connection with the illegal abortion he performed on helen so that also carried a death penalty. So he could have also been convicted for that. Even if he had gotten off in New York, the other state could have mm -hmm. prosecuted him. So that is the story. Other thoughts? I, so you, don't, you can't decide what you think. I, I need a motive. I just felt like, I mean, yeah, maybe she took, but I mean... They, they talked to the roommates. They talked to everyone that knew her. No one said that she ever took drugs. She, there was never any... Because morphine is one of those things. You take it, you're going to fall asleep. You're going to be kind of useless. You're, people will notice. Mm -hmm. And if she was habitually taking the stuff, somebody would have said something. They, they would have said, listen, you know, we noticed she was always Maybe, out of it. Maybe. Look how long they were married and uh, nobody knew. Yes, but they did know he was he was hanging around. They knew she told everyone they were he was her fiance. So, um, she had to come up with some story. I don't know. She had to come up with what story? Well, she came up with a story because he was still hanging around. Like, yeah, she kept it secret, but I mean, that that's not a behavioral thing. It's not like no, no one knew he existed. No, the the point you were making is that uh, this would never have gotten out because secrets are very hard to, to keep. Mm -hmm. Yet the whole society 
at least on, on that uh, social class, was all about secrets and hiding things. So why so would you want... You think your, all the roommates were taking morphine too? Well, I, I just don't think it would have made the papers is where you're getting all the information. Oh. You're, not, you're not interviewing the family members. They're not going to say anything. Yes, my, my daughter, my, my niece, my... Well, they brought know. all everyone into court. They interviewed... I mean, everybody had to testify. This is all based on testimony. Absolutely. And they, there was no incentive to say that my daughter was a drug addict. Mm. And why would they? Mm -hmm. And what would they get out of it? In fact, that would work against their interest to say... She, she could have died from overdose because she was a drug addict when they were trying to convict them. Yeah. I mean... You could go either way. Either way. Those are all speculation, but we have no motive. Not, not a single motive. And that, that in itself, I, I would find to be a, uh, you know, a reason why the case shouldn't have gone forward. So one of, one of the sources I used was this book called Six Capsules mm -hmm. by George R. Deckel Sr. And I hope I pronounced that right, Declay or Deckel. And he, um, his, his opinion was that in a court of law now, he would never have been convicted, that it was not, a right. there was too much reasonable doubt. And so, exactly. No, I, I agree with that, and I, I think I know where he's going. Russell's. <laughs> if you move your hands too much, it rustles. Oh. Yeah. Um, go ahead. You, you know where you're going with that. So when I, when I was analyzing the, the case, I was looking at the very low standards by which they would convict somebody. Yes. So you look at all the external uh, circumstances like his promiscuous behavior, mm -hmm. um, his uh, bad name to wealthy families, right. uh, his abortions, his undermining the law, you know. Social yeah, order. They, there was definitely a lot more. Um, Pile that all on top of each other, then yeah. sure, he's a menace to society and yep. a, uh, you know. Kill him. To, and yeah, the, the goal would be to kill him. But, right. but if I'm just going by the evidence that I've seen here, it, at best, he's guilty of, uh, of being, uh, like you said, a sociopath who thinks he can fix everything on his own. Right. Uh, he knows better than anyone else. He's above the law. Right. Uh, he, he's guilty of all those things. Um, and at best, it, manslaughter. And uh, remember, he was 22 when he got executed. I mean, he was so young. It's, you know, this is like, he was just basically like this dumb young guy. Yeah. Trying, he, to, trying to do what he thought was best, well, he but wasn't not a really knowing what was best. He wasn't a doctor. He, he was uh, not. He I don't think he really knew how to diagnose anyone effectively. Mm -mm. And uh, but at the same time, if you're going to murder someone, someone specific, where you know of what you were doing to, according to him, and to everyone he bragged to, that he was a uh, philanderer. Why would this one woman be any? Why would she be special enough to kill? He would just move on to the next one. Right. That was his history. That was his history. Yeah. And in fact, if he did, if he just moved on, says, uh, no, I, ne I was never married to you. You have no proof. Mm. Uh, you know, people. Oh, no, they got proof. I forgot to mention that. Yeah. They oh. did have proof. Oh, yeah. Because they forced him to go to a lawyer and and sign an affidavit. They got the, they got the, the fake certificate sent over to well, them. Well, that changes some things. 
Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Not a little bit, because now now I have something that ties him to her. I don't know why I skipped over that, sorry. So that, because you, so the he, argument is that all the other he victims... He did certify it was him. Yeah. Why was he stuck to her, and why did he have to divorce everything uh-huh. from her? Well, now he has a motive. It's not a strong motive, but it is a motive now. That changes a lot. So you're saying... <sighs> He couldn't, that he was not motivated to just marry her in, legitimately? Why wouldn't he just do that? Well, in your, if you remember correctly, you had told me that he had fallen in love with, with someone else. Yes, he, that's true. He was and in, so, supposedly engaged someone else. And he could not marry meant. this person unless somehow he was able to get out of the situation he was in. Yes. So if he could discreetly kill her. There's so much going on. Oh yeah, that's yeah. Even um, I get confused, and I've I've researched this thing for I'm going, weeks. Well, I'm, I'm just going by what you told me. <laughs> right, right, right. So that does change things, yeah. and it depends on his temperament, uh-huh. uh, whether he's known to, you know, how he handles problems. You know, whether he's, uh, you know, his character. You know, whether he's honest. Uh, you know, how much he loved the other woman. Clearly uh, not. What honest. his future. Yeah, I don't know. We don't have enough information. These are all things I would have established, you know, yeah. to determine whether he had a motive to kill her. But there is a slight motive now. Okay, you're right. The, and you have to, yeah, you have to weigh that against that. So uh, he definitely had the opportunity. Um, if you think that's a motive enough, then that's a motive. Could and, he have killed her in he had many other ways? He could have. It would be hard. I mean, they could detect a lot of poison. How else could he have killed her? He could have let her bled to death, bleed to death, but then he would have had to deal with the fact that she had died from an illegal abortion. Right. And he would have definitely been blamed for that. My only question out of this whole thing, you know, as far as the court case would have gone, Mm. when they went to prove that he committed first-degree murder, was the question I had asked earlier was, if she was sick, to the mm-hmm. point where they th- they thought she had some serious illness, mm-hmm. and she was getting progressively worse. How do you divorce the two? How do you separate uh, the illness from the cause of death? The pinpoint pupils. Right, but you you can you can have AIDS, which will kill you, and also get hit by a bus. I don't conclude that the bus was absolutely the thing that killed me. So you're oh. saying she may have taken an overdose of morphine but not died from it? I'm saying that, well, you didn't prove that she died of morphine, only that she had a, a large amount of morphine. Well, they had three doctors that testified that all the symptoms were of a morphine overdose. That was what they told All the about. symptoms. You only said all one. Uh, she turned blue. She wasn't breathing. Dead people turn blue. Um well, for 12 hours, like very, very shallow breathing, pinpoint pupils. These are all opiate symptoms, opiate overdose Shallow symptoms. breathing? I'm like sorry. one breath every minute or something. Yeah, oh, that does happen. That's why they were afraid to give, pump her stomach. Because her breathing was so shallow that they were afraid that they would choke her just by doing putting a tube down her throat. And... Um, the fact that she was unconscious, they couldn't, you know, wake her up. Well, so. let me ask you this. When the mother says that, let's forget what the mother says about what it was. Let's assume that there was something that was able to affect her daughter 
to the point where she knew there was something wrong, mm. okay, for an entire month. So there had to be something internally uh, causing some issues with her, mm. right? And it wasn't going away. And for something to last a month isn't, you know, isn't something simple like a indigestion or something you ate or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, hormones. You know, a month is a pretty long time to be sick. Um, what do you think? I'm trying to think of a question I could ask you. But without information, I don't even know how to answer, ask that question. I mean, hmm. there would have to be something that would have caused that. What, what do you think would, would be the issue? Why she had headaches? Well, enough to that her mother thought she had malaria. Mm. And it could have been malaria. Right, it could have been. Yeah. It could have been kidney could failure. Could be headaches. Yeah, it could be anything. It could be anything. That's my point. Right. Right. But what, I mean, you have all the symptoms of an opiate overdose, so why would you suspect anything else? If the person's not responsive and... Uh, okay, so no, that, that's... I'm, a, that's, I'm not sure your point. Yes, that's a great question. So... If, if the information you give, let's assume that you have, you have a wide ranging number of possibilities why someone, something could happen, mm -hmm. but you talk to a specialist and you tell a specialist that uh, these are the things we do know and they're related to the thing that you're specialized in, I would argue that those specialists would would use that information in a way that they could um, explain why something happened without ever considering any other alternative. So they're looking at it. I'm not saying that very well. Um, these are just doctors. They're not specialists. Is that what you mean? That these are specialist doctors? They're just doctors. And they're 1890 doctors, so definitely not specialists. This is more more of a methodology. When when if if you're given, it's it's a it's a fallacy or or a like a typical. I'm sorry, I can't can't think straight right now. Okay. My point is, is that it's easy to look at the various variables that are right in front of you on a, on a table, mm -hmm. and then try to rearrange them in a way that can describe an outcome. Mm -hmm. Unless you have the entire picture, it's easy to put all of your your eggs in one basket or all of your knowledge into one, you know, cup. Yeah. And I think they could have... Done a better job? It's not done a better job. I, I don't see how you don't see what I'm saying. I got to be a little clearer. I'm sorry. I mean, if I, I see... I can give you analogies. If like a doctor has seen opiate poisoning before and they see it again, like they'll know what it looks like. What I'm saying is I've watched enough uh, medical shows where mm -hmm. they go in and there's, there's information that's relayed to the doctor. Yeah. Well, the doctor says, okay, this is what I've got to work with. And then he sees, okay, these issues are here. Okay. And, I, and then he ranges them in a way that says, okay, this can describe a way that this person died because... Uh, on the surface, this is what's going on. Okay. However, given an autopsy later on, hmm. it, there could be some overlap, and it changes the entire diagnosis, or not diagnosis, but the 
the uh, whatever Results. they call it. Huh? Results. Results. Oh, I mean, yeah, I guess. So you're, what are you saying? They should have done a better autopsy, more wide-ranging? What I'm saying is that once they had the information that said, okay, she was given morphine, and he goes, yeah, she has symptoms of, of, of high concentration of morphine, Okay. therefore death, they excluded any other possibilities. They were, their job was done. They never went to go look back at any other possibility of why, they, why she could have died. Because I think it was pretty clear-cut. I think that's why. That's my take on it. If three doctors say the same thing the day you die, it's probably why you die. Especially okay, if it's so let, like let me try overdose. this way. So if, if I ask you as a doctor, mm -hmm. uh, let's assume the exact same scenario where she's laying on a table, uh -huh. and I ask you, she or at first I tell you that she was given morphine, so you have that information in your head, and I said, is it possible that she died of morphine? And you look at it, well, let's see what what she possesses. I mean, mm -hmm. She has pinpoint eyes. She's mm -hmm. blue, slow breathing. These are all things that could cause uh, an overdose, mm -hmm. indicate an overdose. Well, are those also things that just occur when you have a large amount of, of morphine? Those, that's also true. Yeah. But doesn't it's, necessarily point to a... You mean a large amount, but not enough to kill you. Exactly. I see. All right, that's the end of part one for the story of Helen Potts and Carlisle Harris. Uh, stay tuned next month for part two. And if you like the show, please rate and subscribe. It really helps us out. And remember to not drink the Kool-Aid. Bye for now. <laughs>